Welcome to America Now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. We have quite a show for you today, my friends. Team Buck, thank you very much for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. We're going to be talking about the White House openly accusing Russia of covering up the chemical weapons attack perpetrated by the Assad regime against the Syrian people. That is quite an allegation, especially on the eve of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson meeting with his Russian counterparts in Moscow. Uh, You also have Jeff Sessions bringing the immigration issue back up. Attorney General saying that cartels and gangs near the U.S.-Mexico border need to be put on notice. The federal government is coming after them, and there will be a renewed focus on that, as well as other aspects of uh, enforcement at the federal level of immigration law. And more on the fallout for United Airlines. Oh, my, it has been quite a busy 24 hours for the United PR team, and we'll also get into some other stories and thoughts uh, throughout the show. Now, let me start with what everyone is talking about, and then I'll transition into what we should be talking about. Because while I don't like to play too much defense, uh, we can already see where this is going uh, with Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer is now trending on Twitter, and a lot of you are like, who cares what trends on Twitter? Well, this is where media people get their sense of what other media people are talking about. Sean Spicer is trending on Twitter right now. There are already... Well, there's a lot of activity uh, surrounding Spicer because of what he said at a press conference earlier today, and I'll get into the details of it. Um, But there is a lot of mockery, and if people want to mock Sean Spicer, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for somebody who has to get up and answer questions and speak extemporaneously. This isn't reading off a teleprompter. This isn't prepared, focused group answers. This is you're out there, and the press is trying to Well, in some cases, get to the truth. In most cases, trying to just undermine you and the administration you represent. But people make mistakes. I will, over the course of this show, say things that were unintentional, either unintentionally uh, wrong or even offensive, or it's just going to happen. If you speak for three hours at a time, I'm sitting here with a microphone and some notes in front of me. That's it. But not reading anything. No one's prepared anything. This is just me. So I have sympathy in that regard for Sean Spicer right now, because what he said was uh, was a blunder. Uh, there's no there's a question. But should there be calls for his firing over it? Well, of, of course there should be, right? Because the whole purpose of the liberal media right now is to find different members of the Trump administration to isolate and destroy. Classic Alinsky, by the way. Isolate the target, freeze it, and then destroy it. That is what Alinsky taught his community organizer followers, and that is what we see the media doing now. In fact, there was a very handy graphic that some of you might have caught earlier in the week on CNN that broke up this current White House into factions. You had the Priebus faction, 
GOP insider beltway establishment types. You had the Bannon faction. So it was Bannon and some of his other top people, uh, including Flynn and KT McFarland as the, uh, I don't know what we, the, the Republican populist side of this. And then you have the Trump family members. Kush, well, Kushner was the, the way I believe they described this tier. But what was fascinating wasn't the breakdown into Priebus, Kushner, Bannon as the factions in this White House, that they had various figures in the White House written over their photo with either resigned, recused, and it was a, an excellent visual, visualization of what the media is really trying to do, which is to, it's like they have the career targets on a wall here. They're trying to remove these people from the White House. And Spicer is now in the midst of this. Now, Spicer is considered part of the Priebus tier in this White House. And they gave or he gave the media an opening and they ran with it. OK, so let's get into what he said. And then I'll talk to you about what they're what the media is not discussing, what they don't want to talk about, because I think it shows or it should show how dishonest they are. And also there should be embarrassment for this media. Uh, not for a one-off mistake, not for saying something that is uh, clearly unintentional, but but unwise and, and buffoonish. But again, it was an accident. I don't think he meant to say this. Uh, but the media has been running with a lie for months, and we're starting to see that lie come apart, the lie of Russia-Trump collusion in the election. They haven't just been saying it should be investigated. They have been pushing this under the pretense that they already know the outcome. And what we've seen from the past few days with this administration and the way it interacts with Russia, that makes that narrative a whole lot harder to hold on to. But first on to Spicer. This is what they want to talk about. And then I'll get to what we should talk about because they're calling for Spicer to resign. He's getting ridiculed on social media. That's nothing new. Uh, But they're calling for his resignation. I see here the Anne Frank Center. Uh, for mutual respect, its official Twitter account has said that Sean Spicer needs to be fired or resign. Um, here is what he said. In res- they're talking about Syria. He's trying to say that Assad is terrible. Assad is a genocidal dictator. Similar rhetoric to what you would have heard about Saddam Hussein before him. And he made the mistake of going into the let's talk about Hitler and compare someone to Hitler. Um which, of course, his boss, Donald Trump, has been unfairly compared to Hitler by the media for months. Uh, Serious news organizations running straight out of the Hitler playbook. This is what Donald Trump is doing by publishing immigrant crimes or straight out of the Hitler playbook. This is what he's doing with Islamophobia. Th- th- these are real headlines that I have seen. But Spicer went to the uh, Hitler comparison, and that's not a wise move. Play clip uh, eight, please. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. Now, some of you hearing that, of course, are saying to yourself immediately, well, no, Hitler engaged in the extermination of 11 million people in the death camps, 6 million of them Jews. And the most well-known process in that grotesque and horrific extermination of human life involved the usage of gas, the gas chambers, uh, chambers of Auschwitz and Dachau and uh, other other places. So other well-known camps of death. 
Uh, so, of course, Sean Spicer is is speaking here and, and has blundered, but then he had an opportunity to clarify, and this is where his, he, he digs the hole for himself, unfortunately, a little bit deeper. Play clip nine. What did you mean by that? I, I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing it. I mean, there was clearly, I, I, I understand your point. Thank you. I, I, thank you. I appreciate that. There was not in the, in the, he brought him into the, to, um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that. But I'm saying in the way that Assad used them where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent, into the middle of towns. It was brought to it. So the use of it, and I appreciate the clarification. He was trying to say that Hitler on the battlefields of World War II didn't deploy uh, gas as a method of offensive warfare that was deployed, of course, in World War One. Uh, a lot of mustard gas, among among others, it wasn't deployed in World War Two. But it's a it's a clumsy comparison that doesn't that doesn't need to be made. And, and he makes a mistake by going deeper into it. But the reaction to this, of course, is well, he's minimizing or or, or he's trivializing the Holocaust. Well, the reaction is twofold. He's trivializing the Holocaust and people are also calling him an idiot. He's not an idiot. He made a mistake. Uh, he wasn't thinking clearly when he said this or, or when I mean thinking clearly, I'm not saying he was drunk, but I mean, he wasn't thinking through his answer entirely, which can happen. I know people think that it's easy to stand up there and just take question after question and it's hostile. Uh, but he meant that it wasn't that uh, that Assad did something that Hitler didn't do. It's not a good comparison. Hitler's worse than Assad. Don't go there. But he was trying to say even even Hitler did not use chemical weapons on the battlefield. He did use them en masse against civilians, men, women, children, the elderly, in gas chambers, as you know, and as all of us are um, quite aware. In fact, uh, an unfortunate uh, historical uh, miss here for Spicer, on in addition to everything else, is that it was in fact the Nazis who, well... The Germans and the Nazi German scientists and then the Nazis uh, took it from them. Um, I don't believe at first it was in a uh, it, it was for government purposes. It was or rather it was for weaponized purposes. It was a pesticide. Uh, sarin gas was developed in 1938 in the IG Farben factory in Germany. And it was an accident. Initially, they were trying to create a pesticide that targeted the nervous system of an insect. And when they came, when the scientists came into contact with sarin gas, these German scientists, uh, they were incapacitated for weeks. That's how potent it was. So then there was a recognition, well, this is clearly useful as a weapon. And uh, sarin gas was then taken by the Nazi government and put into... Uh, use, uh, or rather put into development for weaponized uh, purposes. So the Nazis had this. They did not use it against troops. They used it against people in the death camps. But yes, it, wa it was in fact not, it was Nazi Germany that developed sarin gas. Uh, although it is better known, um, or rather the gas that was used in the, in the uh, Holocaust uh, is better known, or is more broadly Zyklon B. That's the one that you'll usually hear of. Anyway, just some historical background. Um, so we have Sean Spicer saying this, and uh, he is now in the midst of calls for his resignation. 
Does anybody really think Sean Spicer was trying to trivialize the Holocaust? I mean, I see all these journalists, and they're just piling on, and people are like, oh, he's got to resign. Nancy Pelosi, oh, he's got to resign. Of course, Nancy Pelosi, right on cue. He has to resign. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi's out there. Oh, he needs... They, they just want everybody who works for Trump has to resign in disgrace. This is the plan. All right, Sean Spicer, by, by all accounts, is a, is a totally decent guy. He's got a very hard job, a job that even, uh, you know, I, 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 if, I don't know. I don't know many people that would be able to pull off that job very well. It's a tough position that he's in. But there's just such dishonesty around this. You know, now you've got people calling for the press secretary's resignation. It's trending on Twitter. It's all over social media. And they're making him out to be some kind of moral monster or how could he? And Look, the, the guy went down a path he didn't mean to when he was talking. He was just trying to say Assad is really bad. Assad is Hitler-like. He's not worse than Hitler. That, that's, that would be historically uh, Ill- illiterate. And unfortunately, the comparison that Spicer makes is... is Somewhat is, is is historically illiterate, but the point here is he wasn't trying to. It wasn't meant to be offensive. And, you know, Chelsea Clinton, oh, he needs to go visit the Holocaust Museum. OK, he's not unaware of the Holocaust, everybody. But this is again, this is why it's so hard to have an adult policy conversation these days, because people in the media who know better are acting like Sean Spicer really, really showed us who he is with this one. Now we, we he needs to be held accountable for this. He said something. He said something dumb. He didn't mean to. He's already apologized for it. And, but it just goes back to the initial point I was making about the list of Trump people and the different tiers of Trump supporters and the factions within the world. They are dividing and conquering all these stories about how bad this White House is. All of the oh, White House in disarray. Look at the fighting between Kushner and Banner. Kushner and Banner are big boys. I'm sure they'll figure it out. It's, it's all going to be fine, everyone. Whether one stays or goes, and if one's going to go, it's more likely to be Bannon, but it doesn't really affect any of us all that much. It'll be fine. The media doesn't have to pretend this is some giant scandal, some huge threat, but they like to do that. They like to hype it up, disarray, dysfunction, ineptitude, incompetence, incompetence alongside the steely resolve of a fascist, depending on what day we're talking about here. Oh, can they get nothing done or are they going to get everything done? Are they going to destroy the institutions of our democracy or are they unable to even be at the helm of the institution of our democracy? Media doesn't know. Media doesn't care. They just want to say it because they want to make people think that they're all a bunch of of imbeciles running this government right now. That's all they really care about. And bad people, to, in addition to that, that they're evil. So we're all sitting here now. We're supposed to talk about, oh, Sean Spicer, what's he going to do? This will blow over. Um, this will go away. But let's just be clear about this. Uh, Sean Spicer is not the story today. The real story should be that the Trump administration is calling Russia to task on its complicity with chemical weapons. The real story today is that the administration that's supposed to be a puppet of Russia is doing more and has done more in the last week to rein in Russia on Syria than Obama managed in years in office. And on top of that, all of the moralizing about Trump and Trump strike and uh, Trump strikes and uh, the travel ban from journalists that had not really a peep to say when Obama was dithering for years while a half a million people, that's the body count in Syria, half a million people died. Now they want to play the self-righteousness game. And, oh, 
Trump. He's look. He's for the Muslim ban, so he can't possibly be for helping the Syrian people. Well, we should talk about what helping the Syrian people would mean instead of playing the let's just trash Trump game. But that's what they want to do. So, team, sorry if you uh, heard some silence there before when I called for Spicer sound bites. We are having some uh, tech issues here in the Freedom Hut, uh, just for the purposes of bringing us all on the same page and getting us all up to speed together. If we can get our uh, clips to play properly, our, our actualities, as we call them in radio, uh, we will play those on the Spicer uh, on the Spicer audio. He he said, and I apologize that we played it in here. Somehow it didn't go over the system. Um, he said that Hitler, in short, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said that even Hitler didn't use gas against his own people. And that's obviously a very, very uh, dumb thing to say, um, because Hitler clearly did use gas against his own people as a matter of state policy, as a matter of mass extermination. He did not use them on the battlefield, but Hitler was much worse than Assad. So why? It's just not it wasn't a good place for him to go. He had an opportunity to. Uh, clarify and the clarification wasn't much better than the initial statement which is why everyone's piling on you've got nancy pelosi saying that he should be fired and i apologize before if you were wondering why you didn't hear that soundbite it's just a technical issue and we are addressing it as quickly as we can in here uh but back to the other story today that i think should be getting much more attention than whether or not sean spicer has a job next week isn't it, isn't it worth pointing out that affects really no, there are no Americans who will be positively or negatively affected by whether Sean Spicer has a job next week. I promise you they can get someone else to take that job tomorrow. Probably the deputy press secretary, if not someone else. The calls for firing, though, are part of a broader effort to undermine the administration and to send a message to anyone who would consider working in or even working with this administration, you will be personally and individually targeted. Your reputation will be ruined. You will be destroyed. You better stay away. Trump is toxic. That's the message that you're supposed to get. Meanwhile, the administration has actually sent Rex Tillerson out there, and they're making some very interesting and, uh, dare I say, bold statements with regard to Russia. In fact, they released, and how many of you even uh, saw or heard about this earlier today. And that's, by the way, not in, not in any way an accusation. It's because the media isn't really covering it. There's no interest, it seems to me, uh, to talk much about it. But there is a declassified report on the chemical weapons attack that the White House has released. And I read through it, and it was just released today. And it is very critical. First of all, it goes through the reasoning behind why they think this is why they believe that this was a chemical weapons attack that Assad perpetrated and that the Russians uh, have been turning a blind eye and or complicit in this process, including with propaganda that pretends that Assad is not the guilty party here, that maybe this was a false flag. And in fact, we have Putin saying that very thing, that it's a false flag. Uh, So we will get into that. I want to talk about Syria policy what it means for us, what it means for U.S. foreign policy, what it means for our troops and those who risk their lives in the service of this country. Uh, I, I want to talk about what this all means for them and not whether Sean Spicer has job security. He spreads freedom. 
because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. Phone lines open 844-900-2825. We can take calls. I don't think we can play audio clips, actualities in radio speak from today just yet. Um, when I can, I'll play for you that the Sean Spicer sound bites that kicked off all the furor today. Again, sorry about that. Technical difficulties in the Freedom Hut. Nothing uh, makes somebody behind a radio mic want to uh, scream Scream things that can't be said on radio more than technical difficulties. But here we are. Um, all right. We have calls coming in. Greg in Oklahoma City. Uh, good to have you on, my friend. Buck, shield tie, my friend. Shield tie. Talk about uh, Syria and what we should do there. Uh, it's an interesting predicament that we find ourselves in. While I do agree with uh, the strikes against the, the airfield there, you know, that is a great way to show them that, hey, you know, when you cross the red line, we're actually going to do something. Like you mentioned yesterday, I believe, having some sort of action take place, showing them that we are serious and that we are going to hold to our commitments. Um, at the same time, I don't know what we should do going forward. I've really struggled with thinking about, you know, who we should back and whatnot. You know, my time in Iraq, you know, I've dealt with the Kurds in northern Iraq. And while that would be great to support them uh, as much as we can, obviously, doing a lot uh, outwardly to showing the world community that we're going to back the Kurds. That's really going to make an issue with Turkey and that they're probably just going to open the floodgates and let as many refugees go into Europe as possible. They're already holding Europe hostage saying they want a bunch of money or they're going to do that. You know, who do we back if we take out Assad? You know, that vacuum is just going to be filled by extremists. As we both know, we just look at Iraq and what happened when we backed out there and left a power vacuum um, in the west, uh, western part of Iraq. You know, ISIS came up and whatnot. Do you have an idea, or do you see where we're going to go with this? Well, I have an idea of what I think we should do, but in terms of the administration, and I can share that, although it's, uh, <laughs> you know, how much time do you have? Uh, but also, <laughs> I, I think that the administration right now is somewhat unpredictable. But but first, I do think it's it's worth establishing as as everyone is talking about this right now, and oh, there's some huge rethink of of what Trump has been, um, you know, of what Trump has been generally uh, considering with regard to Syria. I don't know if that's true. I mean, taking action against the Assad regime is that is the part of this that is different. But let's also remember that there have been airstrikes against the Islamic State in Syria, which is technically a sovereign country, although it's not in reality a sovereign country anymore. It's a country that's been split into uh, many different pieces and controlled by different factions. Uh, I mean, right now alone, you really have the Islamic State in control of a portion of the country. Uh, you have the Kurds in control of an increasing size of the country, uh, part of the country, uh, particularly in the north and the northeast. Uh, you have rebel non-ISIS factions, which covers a whole bunch of different groups, by the way. Um, and then you have, of course, Assad. But when you look at those maps, as I'm sure you you know, Greg, from, from seeing them, uh, they don't re- tell you the story as it needs to be told. Because, for example, a lot of the, the parts of the country that are not under Assad territory, well, that there's not much population density. If you had a population density map of Syria... What the Assad regime has matters a whole lot uh, in comparison to what some of the other factions have out in the desert east towards Iraq. 
So uh, what I, what I think we could do or should do is an accelerated version of what it took the Obama administration several years to put together, which is the uh, arming and assisting uh, with airstrikes and also intelligence support and special forces deployments uh, to help the Kurdish, which is now the y- YPG um, militia on the ground to encircle and eventually cut off and destroy the Islamic State and take back Raqqa from them, right? That's, that is underway. It's taken too long to get us to this point, but that needs to happen. Uh, and I think along that pathway, there's room for re-engagement of regional allies to figure out what a post-Assad, uh, what a post-Assad Syria would look like and to get buy-in from the Gulf states, from the Saudis, from the Egyptians, from the Turks. Turks are essential in this process, as you know, Greg. Uh, but then at some point, you do have to confront the question of, well, okay, let's say we put a framework in place that is post-Assad. And again, none of this involves large U.S. troop deployments. None of this involves us fighting counterinsurgency operations against ISIS or against Assad holdovers or whatever, right? This is just doing what is already being done in terms of on the ground, doing maybe a little more of it, more aggressive airstrikes, and, uh, but then also the diplomatic reality changes. And I think the, the airstrike, I'm sorry, I keep saying airstrike, the missile strike um, may have been helpful in that regard and that it shows a seriousness uh, of purpose to our allies. And it also, uh, also shows the Assad regime that there can be consequences for further bad behavior. People say, well, this one strike didn't mean all that much. And that is true, although it is a departure from previous policy and hitting Assad in any way is something Obama was unwilling to do. All of that said, if let's say there's a usage of chemical weapons again, well, maybe then we hit four airfields, right? I mean, this is and this you can see how this escalates very quickly and it becomes an escalation of force issue, meaning that we want certain things uh, we want certain concessions from Assad, even on the battlefield. And we say, look, you know, y- you can continue fighting against ISIS. We're not going to have. But if, if we see widespread bombing of civilian areas, we're going to hit you. Or if we see now that does turn into another discussion. And I know there's I'm talking about a lot of things here, but this is the reality, as you know, Greg, from having, as you said, served in who do you serve with in Iraq, by the way? Were you army or a Marine? For the army. Army. Um, and and. This is the complexity of the situation, right? It's easy to, br- to break this down into, you know, Trump says we're going to defeat ISIS. Obama wasn't good at this. Trump uh, wants the Muslim ban. The, the, the talking points, the slogans uh, that everyone's bandying back and forth for domestic political reasons here. If we really want to figure out how to deal with the Islamic State, it does require many levels and a lot of moving parts all at once. This is a complicated civil war with very real, unfortunately, catastrophic human cost and a lot of different players and factions and parties involved. Okay, with all of that, uh, we have to then confront the issue of one, you can't, the the Kurds, not only do the Kurds uh, are not going to be in a position to kick Assad out for us, right? They might be able to take Raqqa from ISIS, but they're not going to take on Assad's army for us. I don't think they want to take on Assad's army. And the Turks certainly, who are, uh, concerned about uh, Turkish expan—I mean, uh, Kurdish expansionism uh, for a whole variety of issues, right? Turkish state aspirations. The Turks would have a—they would—they would freak out if they thought that we were backing a Kurdish. But that's—that's that's, so. That's not really on the table. So then you have to work with factions, Sunni Arab 
Syrian factions on the ground to come up. Oh, wait, sorry. I even jumped. I jumped beyond a step. So we can't use the Kurds. The Kurds take Raqqa from the Islamic State. Do we want to get rid of ISIS? I mean, uh, sorry. Do we want to get rid of Assad or not? Do we are we going to force him out? Are we going to try to induce him out? Is there any scenario we can foresee where Assad would willingly uh, give up his power? I think the answer to that is no. I don't think there is. I think even with a promise of safe conduct to the south of France or wherever he'd want to go and everything else, I still don't believe that Assad would step down. I think he's a true believer in his Ba'athist, oppressive, totalitarian party. And he does recognize. And this is where this all also the, the levels of complexity uh, are even greater than I think many in the media who have never, as you have, as I have, been in an active war zone dealing with many of the, the same factions, Sunni Arabs, Shia Arabs, Kurds. Um, part of the problem that becomes if you decide to topple Assad, even if you use proxies to do it, what happens when those proxies on the ground uh, exceed exceed the boundaries of humanitarian expectations that we would have for their conduct, right? What happens when there are reprisal killings in the streets of Damascus? Assuming we could get together a Sunni Arab force that was not uh, ISIS-based, obviously. We're trying to defeat ISIS. Assuming we could even vet properly to do that, which is, uh, you know, and you can see, uh, Greg, as I'm talking about this, I mean, how many years do you think this is going to, what I'm talking about here, this takes two, three, four, maybe five, six years. I don't know. Takes a long time. But that's what that's what really solve it. If we're going to try to solve Syria, that's what it looks like. That's a that's a real discussion about it, as opposed to just well, let's just get rid of Assad and like take over. Not that easy. Exactly, Buck. And I mean, we've spent what ten minutes here talking about this, and this is going to be a multi-year uh, issue that we're going to deal with. And it's similar to dealing with a with a hostage taker. You know, there's no there has to be some sort of give and take. He has to know where the boundaries are. We have to set boundaries to say, hey, you're not going to be able to cross this issue. And like you said, working with all these different factions, as I know, you know, being on the ground in Iraq for over two years, these factions, they take hold of a particular, you know, a block of a city, and then, you know, the next block over, those people get mad, and we're dealing with, you know, 10 different levels of Islam and what factions they belong to and people. And there's no easy answer. Everybody, Lindsey Graham, you know, hey, let's just put, 5,000 guys on the ground, I'm not absolutely not for that because there's, one, you're not going to allow the, the military to do what they're best at, and that's closing with and destroying with the enemy. I mean, that's not going to happen. We're going to, you know, build relationships and things like that. So I don't think that's a, a venture that we should obviously go into. Um, but, you know, building some sort of coalition to remove him or at least surround him enough where he's contained within Damascus is, is probably the be- the best option uh, for the foreseeable future. And like you said, the Kurds aren't going to, I mean, they, they might take Raqqa and that's about it. They're not going to want to expand anymore. Um, they, they just want to have live in peace and have their own state essentially. Yeah. And, and it should be noted that let's say we do have a, uh, a U a, a increased U S force presence in Syria, similar to what we have in Iraq to provide uh, certain frontline assistance, intelligence, aerial targeting, uh, you know, air combat controllers, th- those kinds of roles. Uh, let, let's say we do have that, and then we we topple. Let's say we topple the Islamic State out of Raqqa. 
That doesn't mean that every guy, as you well know, Greg, from what we've seen and what we dealt with, I was on the Iraq-Syria desk, you served in Iraq for the U.S. military and the Army, uh, there's there's not some uniform that all these guys have on that they're going to, one, keep on uh, and say, oh yeah, I was part of ISIS. No, they're going to melt back into the civilian population, and in fact, given the the utterly craven nature of the Assad regime and what we've seen from them in the past and the Assad regime's willingness to turn a blind eye to jihadists flying into Syria and then crossing the border to blow up as suicide bombers in Iraq uh, to make our lives more difficult there, meaning U.S. Uh, US military and, and U.S. government trying to cobble together a, a stable country and, of course, killing many Iraqis in that process. I can foresee a future where the Assad regime is willing to work with ISIS against whatever force kicked ISIS out of Raqqa and the surrounding areas. That's how insane and maddening and depraved this whole situation quickly becomes. So this is why, for now, uh, you know, encircle, defeat ISIS, create a a political, a real political coalition that's willing to deal with the Assad problem down the line. But it is a bit down the line, meaning this is not in a month or six months. Assad is a problem that once we've dealt with ISIS, we can turn around and start to look at it. But toppling and uh, that, that is a nightmare waiting to happen. Greg, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you for the great call and uh, shields high. Well, I I said it before I even knew it, but I figured it was true. And it was well, Sean Spicer has already apologized. Um, I, I assumed he had and, and he has now officially. I see this. Uh he says that he was, quote, I was obviously trying to make a point about the heinous acts that Assad made against his own people last week using chemical weapons and gas. And frankly, I mistakenly used an inappropriate, insensitive reference to the Holocaust, for which there is frankly no comparison. OK, yeah, that's what I was saying. But, you know, it's it's not about Sean Spicer uh, being insensitive for most of the media. Uh, they could have given him the benefit of the doubt here in the sense that, yeah, OK, he, he said something. As I said, it was a blunder. It was, it was dumb, but it, it wasn't intentionally offensive. Um, but here here we are. They are still going to be calling for his resignation. It's not just media. This is a Nancy Pelosi calling uh, for his resignation or firing as well. Um, so, so little attention paid uh, in the meantime to what's going on right now where you have... Secretary of State Rex Tillerson heading to Moscow, squaring off with Putin and his top advisors, the most powerful people in Russia, and is going to be pushing them on a whole host of issues relating to Syria, and I'm sure others as well. And this is supposed to be the administration that is so pro-Russia. They are the ones who are going to take orders from the Kremlin. This is what we've been told for months. What's the story now? I mean, you know, there was a guy last night. Uh, I, I had to see it. Um, I saw the clip this morning. What was this? Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, who wasn't willing to even say that he was completely sure that this wasn't some kind of uh, an act of collusion between Trump and Russia. This is a Democrat, and I believe he's a member of Congress. I mean, he could be a state senator or state uh, rep, but I think he's a member of Congress. Uh, yeah, he's de- yeah, he's a member of Congress. Uh, that's how far this psychological rot has spread. 
People have been saying this now for such a long time. They've been getting away with this. They've been promoting this story without evidence, story largely without a basis. With it's, it's, it's a story without facts. It's just a story with a lot of supposition. And it's so uh, corrupted the minds of not just members of the media and, of course, a whole bunch of Democrats and people that I'll just you know, walk around and if I talk to them on the street, this is what they would say. But members of Congress, you know, they're saying that people are going to go to jail for this. This is worse than Watergate. Trump's going to be arrested. Oh, because he was so cozy with Russia. Doesn't it look like those of us who were saying all along that Trump as a benefit to the Trump's election as an obvious and clear better choice for Russia would seem to be a bit of a stretch the opposition to him during the campaign, a lot of it was that he was mercurial, that you can't trust him. You don't know where he's going to come down on an issue. That's who you want as a leader of the free world. If you're Putin and you're a, a dictator and a totalitarian in your own way, I mean, that's that's who you want to be squaring off against. I think personally, if I were if I were advising, if I were like a a senior FSB officer, or I, I had Putin's ear, I would have been saying, Look, with with Hillary, you just have to give her the excuses she needs for inaction, like Obama, excuses excuses that he needed for inaction on Syria and a whole bunch of other Russian provocations. Give her the excuses needed and you know, make sure that there are some Russian oligarchs who are paying Bill either big speaking fees or if that's too obvious, write some big checks to the Clinton Global Initiative, which is closed down, by the way. Oh, yeah, I guess there are no more global problems for it to solve. Or write some checks to the Clinton Foundation, whatever it may be. Um, that would have seemed to me to be a more sure, a more sure bet. But here, here we are. The first foreign policy actions taken by the Trump administration are specifically uh, in opposition to Russia of all countries. There are a lot of countries in the world, right? Roughly a two hundred or so, and yet the. The place where we see the Trump administration flexing its muscles on foreign policy is in a way that is dis- that that shows a willingness to stand up to Russia that the previous administration did not have. And now we've got members of Congress running around saying, well, maybe this is all part of Trump's conspiracy to throw us off the scent of the Russia conspiracy. I mean, have these people lost their minds? He's an ex-CIA officer. Who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty? But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. While it's certainly worthwhile to discuss Trump's change in policy with regard to Syria and where all this is going. We also have to understand that the enemy gets a vote. The enemy is responding. The enemy is not going to sit still for us. The Islamic State is uh, taking actions that I do not believe have gotten nearly enough attention in this recent discussion over Trump and Assad and Russia. Uh, we're joined now by Hassan Hassan, who co-wrote the 2015 New York Times bestseller ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. He's also a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Uh, Hassan, great to have you. Great, uh, great to be with you. 
So I, I thought your, your piece was very important uh, at the Tahrir Institute, Hassan. The rush for Raqqa overlooks ISIS's next moves. Uh, I don't think anyone's paying much attention to this, but if we're going to figure out how to beat ISIS, we need to. What's going on right now? What is the enemy doing? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, the, you know, Raqqa is, uh, is going to take place at some point in the next uh, few weeks, probably uh, a month or so. Uh, the problem with that is that, uh, you know, the campaign against uh, ISIS and Raqqa will probably be a success. Uh, I think there is no question about that. The, the problem is after Raqqa, ISIS has already been building uh, another uh, terrain uh, for, for it to go back, to, to kind of fall back on. Uh, and I think um, uh, if the U- United States uh put that in, in kind of in focus right now rather than after they take Raqqa. I think the, the, that would be far more effective against ISIS than if they take Raqqa and then ISIS will find another corner where they feel they need to fight even more uh, fiercely, uh, fiercely than, uh, than, than currently. You write in your piece about, a, a st- according to people in the region right now, there's a, a kind of anarchy where much of the Islamic State's actual state operations have come to a halt, and it, it seems that what they're they're now are, are they preparing for a last stand, or are they trying to establish themselves in other parts of Syria for uh, uh, protracted insurgency operations? I, I think they're trying to retreat to another part of Syria and Iraq. This is. Uh, a region that it's actually the only region that links Iraq and Syria. This is uh, their way of saying we still control Iraq and or have have some presence in Iraq and Syria. Uh, it's an area that ISIS has been uh, fortifying for more than two two years. Uh, in fact, the first uh, when when the United States started striking started striking against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, uh, that's where we started to see the leaders of ISIS, some senior operatives started to uh, somehow show up there. And that's where, like, for example, when the United States started announcing uh, the, the killing of senior leaders, uh, where were they? They were in that, in that region. The problem is that, uh, obviously, the United States uh, or the U.S.-led coalition focused on Mosul and Raqqa. So recently, we started to hear reports from the ground saying that many of the operatives, especially senior leaders of ISIS and uh, administrative uh, staff, these are the people who are in charge of uh, policing Raqqa, uh, people who are uh, roaming the market and making sure that everyone complies with their ideology and so on and so forth, they started to leave Raqqa and go somewhere else, uh, uh, namely specifically uh, into eastern, uh, like deep into uh, the Euphrates River down, down uh, into Iraq. Uh, what that means is that ISIS is leaving the fighters, the people who are going to conduct the military operation inside Raqqa and uh, leave the people who are responsible or in charge of governance elsewhere. That's where they are. Uh, so basically they're doing uh, two things. They are fortifying Raqqa. They're making sure that there are people uh, who are going to stay and fight in Raqqa in the same way that they did in the same way they did in Mosul. But they, they will also want to uh, keep the people who are who can run a caliphate elsewhere. They go um, uh, down down the river. So they're preparing. I mean, the Islamic State governance is in itself, in a sense, a shadow government. It's not a recognized government, but they're going to move the shadow government into hiding so that it can come back into being if there is an opportunity. Right. Is that uh, this is this is like the Taliban moving across from Afghanistan into Pakistan again? 
Exactly, uh, especially the essential uh, staff of ISIS. So they don't want uh, they don't want to be basically um, uh, in Raqqa, where the United States is gonna take Raqqa and is gonna bomb them and kill them. So they're moving the essential fighters, uh, essential staff, uh, who can run things uh, elsewhere and leave. So media, uh, m- uh, police, religious police, and so on and so forth elsewhere. And they they they're leaving the people who are, who are capable of fighting who. Uh, volunteered to be uh, suicide bombers or snipers and so on and so forth. They they left them uh, in Raqqa. Uh, so obviously they wanna they wanna uh, uh, preserve uh, this kind of uh, cadres within ISIS and also to rebuild um, uh, what I call the third capital of ISIS. So other than Mosul and Raqqa, there is another place where ISIS is uh, preparing to be the next uh, place where they feel where they where they tell outsiders they have a caliphate, functioning caliphate, somewhere in Iraq and Syria. Do you, do you have, is there, are there a couple of places that you think might might be that uh, that place, that might be that position? Yes, absolutely. Re- like, this is uh, uh, an area in Syria called Al-Bukamal and other ones in, in Iraq called uh, Al-Qaim. So this, uh, this uh, basically, this is where, I, uh, where uh, Iraq and Syria meet, and this is where ISIS has been, uh, building its influence, but more than more important than that is that this is where ISIS has been talking about as uh, a center for its uh, fallback. So it's, uh, ISIS is not hiding that. It's actually been talking about it since May last year. They've been talking about how they can retreat uh, to another area. It's kind of more uh, remote uh, than Raqqa and Mosul. They are uh, these uh, these areas are very. Uh, kind of uh, rough terrain. Uh, yeah, and I, I assume the Kurds, for example, who have been very useful up in the north and in the northeast corner of Syria, aren't going to want to go all the way down to Al-Qaim to chase a bunch of ISIS guys. Exactly. That's where uh, things become uh, harder. That's where you have fewer forces you can work with. Uh, they are remote from um, uh, the Iraqi forces and uh, as well as from the Kurds uh, in Syria. So the question, I think this is a dilemma because uh, they are remote. There, there are no local forces. ISIS knows that uh, uh, locals are not ready uh, or prepared or trained to fight them. So this is really kind of an, an easier uh, terrain for ISIS to function in and make sure that it will remain in control of some territory at some point when it's uh, dislodged from um, Hassan, what is the current state of the non-ISIS Sunni Arab resistance in Syria? People refer to them sometimes as as the rebels, anti-Assad rebels, so not ISIS, anti-Assad forces. Uh, What parts of the country are they holding? Are they ascendant? Are they getting stronger? Where where do you put all of that? Because that will have to come into play here, not just uh, against ISIS, but if eventually we're going to talk about what happens after Assad, there need to be Syrian forces in place that can actually handle that fight. So, wh- how are they doing? I think uh, this is uh, this is a really good question, and it's the biggest challenge uh, going forward. Uh, the rebels, uh, the, the anti-Assad forces, the Sunni rebel forces in Syria are divided into two blocks mainly. So, there's one that works very closely with Turkey in the north. In the north, uh, these are, these forces have been fighting ISIS and ISIS. Uh, and Turkey is using them as a proxy or potential proxies against the Kurds uh, in, in the north. Uh, they, uh, they have been fighting ISIS since uh, August last year, and they've taken, uh, uh, Turkey claims to have uh, liberated 5,000 
square kilometers in that in that region. Elsewhere, uh, the rebels are uh, concentrated in the north, uh, e- uh, northwest, and the south, and they are being uh, they've retreated over the past uh, few months. They've lost uh, Aleppo. Uh, they've been on the defensive in Damascus and elsewhere, and, and Homs, for example, in central Syria. Uh, so they're not doing very well. And uh, they're, they're more, more, I think more importantly, they have been losing uh, support from regional allies, uh, regional backers and, and outsiders. So they've been losing on, on multiple, uh, multiple fronts. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Al-Qaeda in Syria, which operates within, uh, within these rebel forces, so they are aligned to them. They are not part of them, but they, are, they work very closely with them, with some of them. Uh, they have been trying very hard over the past two, uh, two months uh, to absorb some of these forces. Uh, they, do, they do so by uh, launching offensives that they think will appeal to some people, so they want to rally people behind them. So they're leading from behind and from the front, like they're really uh, uh, on the front lines, but also trying to appeal to people and make them feel um, uh, that th- th- they have to bet on them rather than on outsiders. And and last one for you, Hassan, before you got to run into a break here, uh, it, it, what is the scenario in which, uh, realistic scenario in which Assad goes? H- how, do, how, does, how, do we, how does one get rid of Assad, realistically? I think, I, I, I don't think it's a realistic scenario uh, for, for a simple reason, that even the backers of the Syrian opposition, these are, these include, uh, these include the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Turks even, these guys don't want Bashar Assad to or his regime to fall abruptly because they also fear uh, that if that if that happens, they don't know who's going to take over, right? So I think uh, some people in the opposition and elsewhere they uh, they still think that Bashar Assad has to go because that's only that's when things begin to be uh, put in place in Syria. Otherwise, Al Qaeda and ISIS will remain and will will try to absorb. Uh, the anti-Assad uh, uh, kind of benefit from the anti-Assad sentiment in Syria. Um, so I think the realistic way is to basically ensure that the regime stops um, uh, bombing uh, uh, areas and also that Bashar Assad has to be phased out uh, through a political process. I think everyone understands that political settlement is needed. The problem is a political settlement is not going to happen, is not realistic, unless the United States is willing to say, enough is enough, and act uh, to make sure that that's the end uh, of Bashar. So there has to be a political process or an altern- like an alternative. So uh, unless Russia and Iran and others feel that uh, the survival of the regime can only happen with the removal of Bashar Assad in the beginning of a political process, a viable political process, an incredible one, a, a, a credible one in Syria that, uh, that people can uh, rally behind, I think that's the only way, uh, way forward. Hassan Hassan is a co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. Uh, it's a book that I've read cover to cover and can recommend to all of you. Uh, Hassan, great to have you. Thank you for giving us some time today. Thank you very much. So I, I mentioned uh, Tucker and this uh, Democratic lawmaker last night. Uh, just play clip four for me, please. It's one thing to say, okay, members of the Trump administration met with Russian officials. That kind of thing happens a lot. Maybe it's ominous, maybe it's not. Well, you're and to saying, lie about it. And, and okay, that's an important that, that, thing. That's what, no, you're saying it. now that the, that the military action we just saw on Thursday night may have been coordinated with the Russians 
to throw sleuths like you off the scent. That appears to be what you're saying. And that just seems like a huge conspiracy to me. <laughs> well, it's a conspiracy if it's a conspiracy, but the reality is I'm just giving it to you as a plausible explanation. No, plausible that's why I said whom? I'm not going to confirm it. I, look, I know <laughs> you, you would know love for me to say that? that and confirm it. I'm just saying that there are people who think that. There are Americans who think who that. Who are they? Look, look at this now. You've got a member of Congress going on national TV and say, well, you know, m- maybe, maybe Trump and Hitler, I mean, uh, pardon me, maybe Trump and uh, Russia coordinated the whole thing. What evidence do you have? I don't need any. I don't need any evidence. Evidence is for evidence is for chumps. Who needs evidence? Um, okay. Well, that's one way to handle all of this. Uh, let's get uh, Rebecca from Tucson, Arizona, on the line. What's up, Rebecca? How are you? Hi. I'm good. Um, How are you? Yeah, Thank yeah. you for calling in. Absolutely great. Um, yeah, I'm a, a longtime listener, first time caller. You know the old bit, but. Um, I, I was just listening on the drive home, and I happened to hear what you'd mentioned about Sean Spicer and the media just taking what they can and running with it. Um, and, and not to play devil's advocate entirely, but just a, a different spin. Um, you know, if, if he is going to be the representative of the party that, that we're all so proud to be a part of at this point in history, um, perhaps he should choose his words a little wiser, given the fact that we already know we can't change the media's perspective on virtually anything anymore. They kind of do what they can to, to pull a story. Whether that's ethical or not isn't the issue, and I think we already all know the answer to that. Yeah, well, However, I, I don't, if, I, by the way, I, I don't, that, pardon me, Rebecca, but I, I, I think you were clear on this, right? I wasn't defending what he was saying as in it was right. I'm just, I, I said it was a blunder, it was dumb, but he, he wasn't trying, yeah. he, it didn't come from a bad place. He just made a historically illiterate yeah. comment. And since I'm talking about it again, and since when we were playing the broadcast before, it didn't go over air for some reason, let's play sure. uh, clip eight, and then I'll keep talking to you about this, Rebecca. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. Okay. So, and then he went on to say he was not using gas on his own people the same way. He brought them into the Holocaust centers. A lot of, a lot of historical ignorance, but not historical malice. He's not like a Holocaust denier. He just said no, something certainly. dumb and now he's apologized i mean should should the white house spokesman be a little more adept if he's going to make historical analogies yeah i mean is this a dumb thing to do sure but is this the biggest news story today no and should the guy be fired forget about even just being fired people are saying that oh he's you know he's like an anti-semite the stuff on social media right now is yeah. just crazy and that's ridiculous that's absolutely ridiculous if, if that's the case if what happened with Sean Spicer today is the case across the board then we would all be up for whatever you know turmoil follows it from any Facebook post that we ever post personally in the government anything like that but I, I just think that um, given the situation that we know what we're facing I think there needs to be a little bit more weariness and, and like you said though I mean you're you're up there talking for hours exactly like you said you can't expect perfection but maybe just hold on, Sean, you know, <laughs> give it a thought before you answer it. Because we already know that there's this, um, not necessarily persecution, but just this this big up for grabs, anything goes, let's take it and run with it. Look what this moron said today. What, you know, and it was a very moronic thing to say. However, um, we need to be putting more thought into what we're saying across the board. Whether you're involved with government, radio, media, it doesn't matter. If, you know, if, if we want more support on this nationwide, worldwide even, there needs to be a more cautious train of thought that's all i'm trying to say oh uh, look I, I don't even think sean spicer would disagree with you they need to be he needs to be more cautious on on what he says and how he says stuff but 
Yeah. Uh, I just I think the the speed with which we go now from somebody said something in the government yeah. or, or in media, somebody said something dumb. They're going to say sorry. They didn't, and they obviously didn't mean it. Spicer clearly wasn't trying to say that you know, Hitler wasn't that. He was trying to say Hitler is terrible. Assad's terrible too. But his his comparison yeah. was uh, was a, a, a blunder, as I said. And and I just think that. The oh he needs to be fired he's a bad person what a what a that's crazy. it's because it's because they hate Trump it's because they hate Trump they hate everybody yeah. who works for Trump and and they realize yeah. that part a strategy to deal with and Rebecca thanks for calling in Shields High uh, a strategy to deal with uh, the administration is just to keep picking off people one by one with with pressure with media shaming uh, with insinuations or even outright allegations about misconduct or wrongdoing that can't be proven or hasn't been proven. Uh, and it just uh, eventually this bears fruit for the other side. Eventually this becomes a uh, worthwhile and useful tactic for them. I want to talk to you about uh, Jeff Sessions and immigration coming up, and we will get into there's more on that United story from everybody uh, from uh, yesterday, everybody. There, there's more. Um, a lot of lot of fun with memes today. Uh, United, as I'm sure some of you saw if you had a chance to bounce around at all on social media. A lot of that going on. Do you think the government should investigate them, the industry as a whole, as it relates to passenger treatment? Law enforcement is reviewing that situation. I think uh, there's plenty of law enforcement to, to review a situation like that. I, I don't think anyone looks at that video and isn't a little disturbed that another human being is treated that way. Clearly watching another human being dragged down an aisle, um, watching you know, blood come from their face after hitting an armrest and whatever. I don't think there's a circumstance that you can sit back and say this probably could have been handled a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, it it could have been handled a little bit better, including by the, I know we've jumped the United story. I was going to hold off on it, but I want to talk about it now uh, because it is getting a, still a lot of people very fired up on this one. Um, the United CEO initially came out and backed up uh, his people on this saying that this was handled according to the protocol. And then, based on the backlash to this, he changed his tune a bit and came out with a different statement. So CEO switching up his position on this in the same day is uh, noteworthy. I think that shows you. Um, uh, Oscar uh, Munoz is the CEO. It shows how, how much attention... This story has gotten, and uh, initially he said, "What? What's the the, the phrase that? Oh, re? Uh, what's the phrase? Re? He's been. Oh, I can't remember now. Um, uh, but they had the CEO say that. Well, that they bumped this guy, and the CEO is coming out saying that it was. I'm trying to find. Sorry, I'm I'm fumbling for the statement right now as I'm on air with you guys. I'm trying to find it. Oh yeah." He was described as, the CEO described him as disruptive and belligerent and also wrote, this is in an email to all staff at United, I am emphatically stand behind all of you. Um, oh, reaccommodate. That's what I was trying to think of. He had been reaccommodated. Uh, this is the, the way they make it sound like it's, if you remember the video game Mortal Kombat, you know, instead of finish him, it's, you know, reaccommodate him. I mean, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, Pretty rough to be reaccommodated. And so here we are now with the whole country 
finally venting our collective fury and rage at one of the biggest airline carriers. Because if you've flown in recent years, you have been subject to this just increasingly bad treatment. And I think it's highlighted for all of us because everything else around us seems to be getting, at least in a uh, in the sense of consumerism and technology, everything is getting better, faster, cheaper. Except for flying on airlines. That's getting more uncomfortable. Seems like, it, at least in recent years to me, it's been getting more expensive. I know that fuel prices play a role in all this and other things that are other variables that are market-based. Uh, but the service has been getting worse, additional charges, and no one seems to care. And you are left out high and dry when the airline decides that that's what's going to happen. Oh, wait. And and as an aside here, before we just dive in more to this United Airlines fiasco, and it clearly is a fiasco, uh, there was a piece in the Courier Journal, I see here. Uh, on David Dow, Dr. David Dow, who now everyone digs through his past, uh, you know, his life, a private and professional, his life. Uh, they dig through that as though somehow that's relevant here. I, I, it was fascinating to see this. The media runs this story on this guy. And sure, they have the, they have the usual asking someone who knows him. He's a pleasant guy. Uh, most people, if you were to ask those who are just kind of around them, and if you remember the press, most folks will just go, with, "Yeah, he's a nice, he's a nice enough guy." You know, he's kind of quiet. I mean, that, that's the response you you more or less expect in these cases. But uh, he had some trouble, some legal trouble in the past, and I feel like I shouldn't even talk about it because it is irrelevant. But it's already out there all across the media, so I'm not doing him any particular favor by not speaking about it myself. Uh, he was convicted of selling prescription or, well, fraudulent prescription drug offenses. Uh, He lost, he surrendered his medical license here, and there was some other stuff as well about being involved, I think, with a patient. And this is all nonsense. Why is this even out there? How is this in any way relevant to the story at hand? Now, I, I know that Uh, I guess the media's response on this would be that because this is such a national story and he's involved in it, everything is fair game. But doesn't that seem a little, seems a a little cold, a little little crass to exploit this guy's, if if it were relevant in this discussion, okay, maybe, but uh, that he had some run-ins with the law in the past doesn't seem to me to matter much based on what we've been told about the incident. And keep in mind, the United CEO... After using the re, he he was reaccommodated. That's that's the meme possibilities here, my friends. With reaccommodated, I'm gonna have to work on some tonight. Uh, the meme possibilities are endless. Uh, that that's gonna stay with us, I think, for a while. Um, there was I saw a lot of references to I believe his name is uh, Negan from The Walking Dead on uh, various social media platforms in response to being reaccommodated. I actually bailed on The Walking Dead after the first episode of the most recent season because it was just too, it was too violent. It actually reached the threshold for me of too violent. I just couldn't do it anymore. I had had enough. And now people are telling me I should go back and finish off the show. But that's a discussion perhaps for another day. So the CEO said he was disruptive and belligerent. And now he's saying, oh, well, actually, he probably should have handle this differently and then you get all these aviation lawyers who come out and they want to tell us oh well there's these there's so many different rules and 
the contract you signed, I thought this was interesting, the contract you sign, uh, or I should say contract, but the, the provisions that are detailed in your, quote, contract of carriage are, it's over 30,000 words that you accept whenever you buy a ticket. It's a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there. It says what the airlines can do and says what your rights are. Now, where this gets a bit shady uh, on the part of the airlines is that they don't want people to know that, in fact, you're entitled to, I think it's, uh, yeah, $1,350, uh, four times the price of a ticket or $1,350 is the cap. If they can't get you, if they bump you and you can't get to your next destination within a few hours. And this raises an interesting question. Why is that by regulation? Why is that capped? Why can't it be whatever they have to pay somebody to get them to give up their seat? At, at some point in, in an open auction format here, uh, at some point they would be able to pay someone enough money that they would take a later flight. I, I don't think any of us believe that if there's 100 seats on a plane and you start offering you know, $1,000 of maybe it's maybe it's just flights you're offering, but $1,000 of flights, $1,500 flights, whatever it may be, that someone's not going to say, all right, we'll go. So the, the cap strikes me as artificial. Um, I want to know why there is that cap in the first place. Because if this is, again, this is where you start to see, is it free market or is this uh, the airlines getting more leverage through regulation and law than the passengers do? You know, don't, don't tell me that it's what the market will bear when in reality there are decisions that have been made by regulators and others about what the market will bear. So $1350 is the is the maximum here. They didn't want to they they didn't want to go above 800. When we go back and look at this incident which has captured Americans' imaginations uh, and revulsion simultaneously because we've all we all feel like we've been treated badly by airlines and we have no recourse. And there's something as an American that is that really bugs you about that. I mean, I guess we'll put up with it from the IRS. Because uh, we have no choice right now. Come on, Trump tax reform. What have you got for me? Uh, but, you know, the, the IRS in, in this country has way too much power and authority. And it's a scandal and a disgrace that they're allowed to do many of the things that they do. And also the tax code's over 70,000 pages. And I know I'm going off on a little bit of a rant here, but keep in mind that just as the airline police will come and get you if you don't give up the seat that you've paid for that has your seat number on it, that has your name on it, that you've been preparing perhaps for a whole day because the stupid airlines require you to get there so far in advance now because of the security, the stupid security regulations. We have all this stuff that we deal with. The same way that the airport police can show up and drag you out of your seat, you know, if you don't, if you don't pay your taxes, if if you were a, a a conscientious objector under the Constitution to paying your uh, ob- paying your Obamacare uh, penalty, or is it a tax? Oh no, it's a penalty. Well, it depends on the day that the Supreme Court's reading it because they change back and forth. But if you refuse to pay that, ah, maybe there's a provision that can't actually arrest you over that. I, I think there actually might be. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? If you refuse to pay your taxes, I promise you. People with guns would show up and take you out of your home. Doesn't matter that your family's there. Doesn't matter if you're having a meal. Doesn't matter if your kids are crying. They'll take you from your home and lock you up. And that's because you're not paying the confiscatory tax rates that are currently prevailing in this country for those of us who earn enough income to pay taxes. It's 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 an outrage and a scandal. And the progressive tax code that we have is actually not really progressive if you want to take if you want to take the discussion there, because it's not based on wealth, it's based on earnings. 
Well, you know, you can have one really good year of earnings and not be wealthy at all. You could also be worth $20 million and have very little in income, especially income that's not taxed at the rates of normal income, which means that you escape the... This is why the Nancy Pelosi's of the world are like, oh, you know, I pay more taxes. But of course, she doesn't pay more taxes, but they like to brag about these things. Oh, you know, I would pay more taxes, but people with guns will show up and, uh, and arrest you. Uh, I, I saw that uh, Jeff Sessions, this was a story up on Fox News earlier today. They're making a, the D- Department of Justice may be making a move away from a focus on white collar crime, p- uh, prosecuting white collar crime uh, aggressively to focus on violent crime. Should this be uh, surprising or puzzling to anybody at all? The fact that you have anybody who's guilty of of a financial crime, whether a low-level fraud, insurance fraud, uh, writing fake checks, whatever it may be, the fact that anybody like that is in the same facility as somebody who's you know, on uh, or somebody who's been convicted of know, a violent crime, a gang member. Uh, to me, that's something we need to reassess as a society. Um, I don't think that people that commit nonviolent crimes should even be in the same facility as those who commit violent crimes. But uh, again, I, I digress. Back to United. See, this is what happens. You just you start to see the injustice of United, and it reminds you of the injustices you deal with in your day to day life, and that is why it has so much resonance. Because you know it's not fair, you know it's not right, you know you're being taken advantage of, and you have no recourse. Uh, in, in a sense, United is like the federal government without the elections that at least make us think things maybe will get better. TBD, by the way. We'll see. Um, but the the profits, as I told you yesterday, for the airlines are quite strong. They're doing just fine. This is not about trying to keep you know keep themselves afloat or keep themselves in the sky, whatever. Uh, this is... A, a an instance where corporate power and I would want to know what the ways are that we can uh, we can uh, push it back in the direction but where corporate power allows a major company to abuse its customers without uh, without any consequences really it, it is it is monopolistic in its functioning if not monopolistic definitionally speaking it certainly functions like a monopoly. Uh, with regard to the fact that how many look, I'm taking a United flight in a few weeks. I already bought I bought the ticket weeks ago. What what am I what am I going to do? I'm going to say you know what I'm not I am not flying United. I ruined my travel plans. What am I, I'm going to take a I'm going to take a, a a canoe. I'm going to I'm going to hop in a sailboat. I mean if I'm going to go overseas, I guess what I, I probably got to take a plane. So yeah, I could try to find another carrier, but then you get into the whole problem of well, is that carrier going to be so much better? Is, is is there some airline out there that's just waiting to give me big, comfortable seats and treat me like a human being and uh, not take advantage of me at the first opportunity, whether it's checking a bag or uh, for me, the change fee is that that's that the change fee is just too much. I, I that that I can. The dude cannot abide the change fee. It drives me insane because they're, they just know they've got you because flying is unlike other parts of the economy and that there's you you have very limited options and they know that you know flying is like being stuck uh with only the the restaurant in your hotel to eat it It, that is never going to be a happy circumstance for you all of a sudden that uh cheeseburger that would be better served as a hockey puck costs you 25 bucks and you're like it's not even good but i have no choice um, that, that's why the airlines get away with what they do. And, and I, I wish I could say that I, I would uh, think that there'd be some change that would come from all of this. But no, 
No, we're all going to be stuck in those giant, flying, loud metal tubes surrounded by people coughing, tiny, uncomfortable seats, paying for bad food if we even decide to eat the food, breathing in the recycled air. It's like, I I think flying can be a form of torture. Uh, But all right, there you have it. That's my sense of the United. (laughs) That's that's where I want to say on United. Um, And I'm going to have to do some reaccommodation memes. Those will be coming up later. If you want to see them, maybe I'll put them on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We'll see. Maybe I'll go to Home Depot. I don't know if I have enough time. We have Felix in Allentown on WAEB. What's up, Felix? Hey, Buck. Shields high. Shields high. Hey, you know what? If I'm on that jury, I'm giving him $100 million. That seems like a lot, but I understand what you're saying. You know what? No, this is a this is a place where I think people do need to take a stand and boycott them or whatever because I heard a pilot on another show. I'm going to call this guy a clown. You know, he had the, he had the audacity to say that it's a privilege for us to fly, okay? Who pays your paycheck? Yeah, I mean, this is like I said with the restaurant. I mean, a restaurant is private property. The manager could come out at some point and say that you're being disruptive. You have to leave just because the manager feels like it. But that would be unfair and nasty treatment, and people would be pretty upset. The difference is, of course, with a restaurant, you have other options. With a flight, uh, with an airline, you may not. Well, he was being disruptive because he was being asked to leave the seat that he paid for. And, you know, there's a lot of phobias attached to flying and being in a, you know, in a distant place. You're not home. Someone's going to make you get off the airplane. And, uh, you know, you're not home where you have your car or anything like that. Uh, different people react to that differently. And maybe for this guy, it caused a panic attack. You know, and, and his past, quote-unquote, criminal record, that has no bearing on this incident. And not only that, on that topic, I know of a doctor... My mother's doctor went to prison over painkillers. A doctor who was conscientious, you know, compassionate for his patients, and somehow he got in trouble for over-prescribing over pain medication. This was back in the early 2000s when they started changing a lot of the guidelines. You know, this man took care of my family, and everyone, everyone loved this guy. Oh, you know, I know D- the DEA uh, decides without, without the medical community getting to weigh in what the, what the regulations are. Or, or what the the thresholds are for suspicious uh, prescription drug activity, and they get it wrong sometimes. Uh, so I, I I know all about that. In fact, I've had some conversations with people on the law enforcement side when they tell me that sometimes that the, the, there are cases where doctors are prescribing what's what is medically necessary, but it runs afoul of a, of one of the DEA. It, it, it's not necessarily that they can make a criminal case successfully, but the DEA will investigate based on that, and that's that's concerning. You know, I mean, I personally had an injury when I was 17 years old. I actually enlisted in the Marine Corps, and I got shot going deer hunting. And I've had pain that, you know, has been with me my whole life. And for a while, you know, going back then, there were times I thought about committing suicide over the pain just to get rid of it. And, and you're saying this doctor it, that was trying to help you was the one that got in trouble? No, no, no. This, this was oh. someone that my mother was, was seeing, you know, but he got in trouble over over a pain, you know, pain medication issue. He went to prison over it, actually. Well, the, uh, Felix, unfortunately, we, we got to leave it there for now, but thank you for calling in because uh, we're at the end of the hour here and we're going to be joined by a guest in just a few minutes. Talk to you about Jeff Sessions on immigration. That's a fight that's getting reignited. Uh, just wait for the uh, media reaction to that one. That'll be interesting. 
Got our friend Matt Welch on the line, everybody. He is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. You can hear his latest at Reason.com. He's also co-author of the book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Ooh, some libertarian time with Mr. Welch. Good to have you, sir. Dude, thank you for having me on your show. This is the first time I think I've been on the new digs. Oh, yeah. The, the, uh, the, big, the big show. Thank you, sir. Great to have Congratulations you. Congratulations for the, for the big show, and it's great to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. So l- let's, let's, uh, let's beat up on United together for a while, shall we? It'll be kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, first, you, you had uh, one of the passengers spoke last night about what he saw and what happened. Let's just play that. Two initial security uh, police officers that came on the plane, they tried to reason with the man. They were real calm. You know, they went about it um, and I, in a good way, and he was just would not reason with him. He was committed to not getting off the plane. Did, was he violent in any way that you saw? When the third officer came on, that was the one that ultimately removed him. He was be, he was yelling at them. He was trying to fend them off the best he could. You know, I guess he felt like he had to do whatever he could to stay on the plane. He wasn't hitting the officers, but he was kind of wailing his arms and uh, trying to keep them away from him. Um, wow. And then ultimately, they had to use the force, as you can see in the video. It was it was wild enough that they pulled this man off. You know, he was unconscious when they pulled him off the plane. And in between him being pulled off, the United staff, where they came on the plane, they were berated by the passengers on the plane, as you can imagine. So there we have it, a, a debacle for United, described in detail by an eyewitness. Matt Welch, how did we get to this point? You know, it's when there is a, a calculation made that the price of, of, uh, of possibly uh, getting yourself into a situation that could end like this, the fraction of the possibility that it can go totally pear-shaped on you, is not really worth bumping up the extra value on the, hey, please get off our plane for you know, maybe $900 instead of $800. Um, that's how. Ultimately, uh, it's in a broad kind of competition sense. We've got five airlines in this country, right? If we had 50, if we had 15, if Richard Branson could compete in this country, and he cannot, and he cannot because both left and right are stupid in this country, not just dumb, but stupid, like you have four syllables on it, <coughs> excuse me, um, because they don't, they, 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 uh, the left believes that uh, the only way that we can uh, keep proper American jobs is that we don't have Richard Branson owning an airline or owning the airline that uh, handles a route in between two domestic places. And the right is like national security, national security uh, terrorists. And the net result is that there is more freedom and competition and consumer choice in socialist Europe than there is in the United States. And that has been true for more than a decade, even though the United States back in the 1970s, in a great libertarian victory led by a lot of liberals, I might add, too, including uh, even Ralph Nader and Teddy Kennedy and some other people uh, played starring roles in this. Um, We led the world in deregulation in the 70s. We have lost the plot, and so we don't allow foreigners to buy airlines in this country. And so that's one of the main reasons why we only have five airlines. And we only have five airlines when you're going on Kayak and Expedia, you try to get from A to B, you might hate United, and I've hated United my entire adult life. They are terrible. They're monsters. 
you still got to fly United a couple times a year, even if you don't want to. Yeah, I'm fly- I'm fly- I'm sitting here trashing. I'm flying United in a few weeks. I, ho- I hope they don't listen to the show and-, and bump me for my flight. Although if they do, I'm going down fighting. Uh, but yeah, I-, I have to say, I, I find it because also, by the way, that guy's going to get a huge check, as we all know now. Um, but uh, are you really? You're telling me that actually now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. Yeah, in Europe, you know, you you can fly from. Uh, London to Dusseldorf on some of these budget carriers for for the price of a, of a Wiener Schnitzel. Yes, um, I mean uh, if you if any of you out there listening have a fr- that friend who moved to London even temporarily, you will recognize that that friend is the most irritating person you know. Why? Not just because they developed a little bit of the British accent, which is super annoying because we're Americans, we don't talk that way, um, but. On their Instagram, on their Facebooks, everywhere they're like, oh, here I am in Malta. Oh, here I am in Greece. I went here for 39 euros this weekend. Because in London especially, but also in basically every single capital in Europe, you have these cheap, low-budget, low-cost airlines flying at a standstead in these godforsaken airports in London. You can get everywhere. And that's because as part of the deal of integrating the EU and, and all that business, which is something that American conservatives always forget because it's easier to make fun of, you know, the 39 rules that govern the shape of a banana, um, is that all these European countries that used to have Air Italia and used to have Swiss Air and all these kinds of things, part of the price of integration was you no longer get your national airline, or at least you don't get to subsidize it, and we're going to open up this competition. You realize most of Europe, ha- most European countries have privately run airports, we don't. We've got like one out in the sticks somewhere. We don't. We have these uh, monstrosities. One of the things that I agree about with Donald Trump the most, and there, that's not a long list. That La- is LaGuardia he, is the airport that a small third world country should have after a major war? Because, yes, it's true. Absolutely 3,000% true. And it's a shame. And if you go anywhere in the world, including Moscow, they have much better airports. All these crap hole uh, Central European airports that I used to go to in the 90s are all better than almost every airport we have here because we haven't, we've lost the plot of, hey, maybe having some private capital and ownership around here is actually useful. Yeah, well, hold on a second, Milton Friedman. How do, you, how do we make this better? What's the, because I, I read about the deregulation, but then I also read about capped fees for seats. It's like, well, we deregulated, but it seems like there's a lot of regulations about flying, and they're not the kind of regulations that benefit passengers so how do we have more competition because people were saying they're going to boycott united yeah right wait until you get that invitation to go to your college roommates you know wedding or whatever and all of a sudden you're going to be flying united well hopefully that this uh, episode will wave away or put pressure on the capped fees on how much you can bribe passengers to uh, to get off your plane uh, which will put downward pressure on the notion of that you can just overbook all the time because what are they going to do to you? Because you can always pull them off using a cop. Uh, hopefully that will uh, can go away a little bit. But ultimately you need real competition. And to do that, you've got to lift the cap. You can't, if you're a foreigner, if you're Richard Branson, who's like a, an international capitalist one should be proud of, he can only own 24.99% of a U.S. airline. And that's why ultimately Virgin Americans sold to Alaska last year is because they're sick of the hassles. They're sick of, of trying to get... Uh, you know, the entrenched players to approve it if they flew between point A and point B, uh, that's got to stop. So, so airlines, so this is my, uh, without even knowing that much about the airline industry, which I'm admitting on air, but uh, just with knowing the way they operate, there has to be a, a cartel effect at play here. I mean, there have to be de facto monopolies because nobody can treat their customers this badly and get away with it. 
correct. Um, I mean, the cartel arrangement is what we had from the advent of the airline industry in the 1920s and 30s uh, until deregulation in the mid-70s. There was four airlines, and they were the same airlines. They had more or less the same market share. Well, okay, we deregulate, and companies like Southwest uh, get in there and help jimmy everything open, and they're great, and they're still great. I love Southwest. I wish I could fly them more. Um, and so that leads to uh, you know a, a wave of creativity, uh, 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 prices going down. Uh, we get some low-cost airlines here, uh, but then they figure out, okay, we can play to Republicans by saying, hey, no, we can't let these foreigners uh, own things here. Like, yeah, that's right, man, 9-11. Uh, and, then, and those same people can play to the unions, saying, hey, look, you know, those, those foreign people, they have different ideas about the importance of workplace safety and this kind of contrived nonsense. And so they started creating a series of rules, including after 9-11, in addition to the creation of the whole kind of TSA uh, super state, there was a huge government bailouts that went to it, and bailouts by their nature just reward the people at the top and blunt the people at the, at the bottom because they don't qualify for the bailout, right? Um, so all of this contributes to the, this consolidation. You don't have uh, competitors coming in. It's more difficult to be a small guy uh, getting in there. And so the biggest single thing that we can do is just open it to competition, let the damn foreigners come in and start airlines to do this. We did lose the plot of, uh, of deregulation. We did the easy deregulation, but, uh, the, but everyone is canny in every industry. Um, you know, there's a reason why... Uh, true free market people are not pro-business. They're pro-competition. There's a huge difference. Um, <clears throat> we want businesses to fail when they deserve to. United, boy, it's been a fun day to watch them fail. I wish they had a bigger opportunity to fail more because they deserve it. You better be careful, man. They're going to reaccommodate you. I you know what? <laughs> My God, have they introduced some good words into the election. Yeah, to, to be to be reaccommodated, you know, man. That day went terribly. I, I got I got reaccommodated. <laughs> it's like you could just you could just go with this all the time. Being reaccommodated is a uh, is now part of the lexicon in a way I don't think they thought it would be. By the way, I I liked your suggestion that I saw before that if you're going to make the uh, the brutal tyrant comparison, go with the so we can all stop ever invoking Hitler for purposes. Go with the slightly slightly vague tyrant. You know, Ceausescu yeah. is a, of Romania. That's a good. That's a pretty good option, actually. I mean, it's not as if Ceausescu doesn't have blood on his hands. I mean, he was a real awful uh, human being in many ways. Has some similarities with the North Koreans now and whatever. But you know, it's you want some variety in there. And my other main suggestion, besides the original suggestion, which is don't do it. You idiot, um, is uh, always put in the phrase literally worse than, um, because I think that really kind of... Uh, yeah, whenever you say that, it means it means not. It means you're about to you're you're about to make a make a boo boo. You're about to make a stumble. It's not not good to be literally worse than. And you insert Hitler in there. That's never good. Uh, also, also, I think it's interesting that that uh, Stalin is not a comparison that people go for more often. I think there's somehow in the popular conception of Stalin. Not a true appreciation for w- what a monster he really was. I-, I think people think of Stalin as like a bad guy who led the Soviet Union. They don't realize that he was a guy who was ordering the liquidation of millions of people. Uh, that, yeah. that, that some, mean, somehow he doesn't get the, the rap that some of the other ones. I mean, even even going like, you know, Pol Pot, people are like, oh, my God, he's the worst. Uh, but Stalin somehow escapes this, and I think it's because the left still has some fondness for Stalin. I'm just putting it out there. I think it's also because, uh, for some reason, he has become a, uh, a term to describe architecture. Stalin-esque, if you just Google it right now, you're going to see 
45 examples, uh, including the uh, huge Casa uh, Populi, uh, uh, whatever it's called, in uh, Bucharest, Romania, uh, that Ceausescu built, which is the second or third largest building in the world, depending on where you put it next to the Pentagon. Um, these are Stalinist, right? So these large, horrifying, uh, kind of gray cement nightmare buildings. Uh, it needed an adjective. That adjective became Stalin, and so they became associated much more with that than the famines that he deliberately engineered in Ukraine, for example. I think there's less uh, legacy kind of uh, sense on the left that he was ever worth a damn. Um, uh, I think that that energy has transferred to Shea. I've got to tell you, I'm, in, I'm talking to you from Brooklyn. Yesterday, or Friday, I should say, my uh, third grade uh, daughter, they were having their day where you dress up as a famous uh, historical character and you have a big poster uh, there that you make in a sort of interactive art project. And the parents come up and they get to ask the kids, oh, so who are you? And I thought it was Mary Curie and, you know, we like discovered radium and well, all that stuff. I'm pretending like I know. Wait, how old is your daughter? She was Mary, Marie Curie? That's like... Yeah, you know, why, why not? Uh, it's no, I'm just saying I'm impressed that I didn't. I mean, Mary. I mean, people listening right now are like, "Oh yeah, I remember Mary Curie." We got to Google that though, real quick. Hey, you know what? Uh, they, uh, they 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 pushed. There. There's five Mary Curies there, so it wasn't. Uh, Look, I mean, I'm go- I'm googling it too. I don't remember that much about it, but go ahead. You were saying. But one of the kids there, and, and th- thankfully it was just one in a, in a Brooklyn public school, was uh, Shea Guevara. So I think that's where. Um, and it was, was a kid standing right next to a Martin Luther King thing. It's like, you know, what? those those two things are not like each other. Um, they try to figure out how and why. Um, but so there's still some residual romanticism of little pockets of big communism. I don't think there's actual romanticism for Stalin uh, anymore. And remember, Khrushchev, as soon as he came to power, he's like, oh, okay, Stalin went way too far. A couple quick things on this, Matt. Uh, one is, why do we all call him Che Guevara? Che means dude. Why don't we just call him Ernesto Guevara, right? Because that would be what his name was. I think it's interesting. We all call him Che. And same thing with Stalin. We should just call him Yosef Jugosvili instead of Man of Steel, which is Stalin. That's an honorific. I don't want to call this guy that. He was he was really bad, a really bad dude. I, I I think it was a it was in one of the Gaddis books where they talk about Stalin had a parrot that Stalin used to walk back and forth in his office uh, in, a, in a kind of a manic fashion, and he would, as walking back and forth, he would stop and spit sometimes. He got in this habit, and he saw that the parrot would mimic it. I don't know. I mean, this this might be apocryphal, but uh, the parrot would mimic it, and he saw the parrot mimic him uh, once when he did this, and he reached in and grabbed it and crushed its head. That's all oh. you need to know. If that's true, that's all you need to know about that guy. OMG. It's like Joe Pesci except with the, uh, in Goodfellas, except with a little bit more power. Um <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, we, we shouldn't give in to these honorifics. At the same time, you have to sort of accede to popular usage. So, like, you know, I understand when people get upset about people who say the Prophet Muhammad. Dude, it's not my prophet. I don't have to call him like that. Yeah, but there are a lot of Muhammads, and you need there's to specify. Let's be honest there, okay? And there's a lot of Yoshkus in, uh, in uh, the various uh, Slavic uh, tribes as well. So his name is, is Shea. I think it's better just to remind people he murdered people in service of a totalitarian ideology that totally failed. Didn't he also, wasn't he also part of the, the Cuban regime? They were, weren't they rounding up gay people? Wasn't there actually a explicit targeting of homosexuals? Am I missing something? Uh, you're not missing anything uh, in Cuba where I've spent some time and actually tried to move in 1998 uh, for a while. Um, they had uh, what might be referred to as camps uh, for the gays. Uh, and in addition to, you know, the, the Beatles were banned and long hairs were arrested for having long hair. 
um, uh, gays were put in camps until the 80s, until the late 80s. Yeah, but Che Guevara t-shirts, still, still uh, the kids are still wearing them. All right, Matt Welch, we, we've gone long. Matt Welch, everybody, is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Check out his latest on Reason.com. Follow him on Twitter. Great guy. Matt, good to have you. Come back soon. Thank you, Buck Sexton. Yeah, I like to get people that are in some of the stories we talk about to come on the show whenever I can. I don't just mean newsmakers and politicians. I mean those who are parts of organizations or can speak from a first-person perspective on any issue. And I would tell you, we, we had booked a member of Dumbledore's Army from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, which is an anti-Trump online community organizing seminar. I don't know what we'd call it exactly, but it's it's community organizing, political organizing for anti-Trump college students about how to resist Trump's, uh, I don't know if they would say fascism, but I suppose that's the, well, these are the questions I was going to ask. You know, do you guys think Trump is a fascist? And let's, and they, uh, then there was, uh, there were two different people who were both booked to come on. At first, they wanted to come on together. I said, no, 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 this is a radio show. We can't have three people shouting over each other or anything like that. And I, not that I would shout. I would have asked very polite questions. I, I, I view the Freedom Hut uh, as my home. And when I invite people into my home, I don't agree with them necessarily. And I don't necessarily support their ideas at all. Uh, but I will at least treat them with respect as long as respect is given in return. And that was my plan. And so we had a couple. And these are grad students. These aren't undergrads. These people in their mid-20s, not that much younger than me. We're going to have them on. And they both, very, very, very late in the game, uh, decided not to come on the show. Um, and I, I just bring it up because I, I don't want you to think that I am in any way unwilling to hear out some members of the left on whatever it is the issue of the day uh, that we're talking about. Uh, it's, I'm happy to have them, I'm happy to debate the issues and discuss with them, but it is tough, um, especially when some of them see, I suppose, the, my work and background. They don't really want to come on the show, uh, unless it's just talking points, nonsense people, and, you know, like the the ones that go on over at MSNBC and some of the other. And then we're not going to have a productive discussion, although I guess we could just have it out on the air and see who see who uh, wins the argument as much as it can be won when you're just talking past and through each other instead of about an actual issue. But I try, I just wanted you to know, I tried. We're going to have some, a, a couple of people from Dumbledore's army. We're going to have them on. And, and then at the last minute, they, they didn't want to join. Um, my, I was just going to ask them questions. As I said, I, this is my home and I'm respectful to anybody that I invite to my home. I wasn't, I'm not going to call anyone names. You know, there are other hosts who like to call people idiots or dumb or anything. I don't, I don't like to do that. Uh, certainly not to not to anybody that I've invited on the show. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not going to call Nancy Pelosi dumb sometimes because I think she's dumb sometimes. Uh, but if she came on the show, I probably wouldn't tell her she's dumb out of respect because she's a sitting congresswoman. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am looking occasionally to get some uh, some leftists in the mix here. So we tried. My advice to this Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University group would have been, I, I wouldn't start, if you're in your mid-20s, I don't know if you want to compare your political movement to a series of uh, novels about wizard school, which I think is, yeah, right, That we could say that's a fair description of Harry Potter. Um, and also, leftists, if you're listening, you can call in if you want to be a guest even. We'll have you on sometime. We can have a civilized discussion where I explain to you how you're wrong about everything and then you come over to my side. It's not a, not a problem. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. The Trump agenda. If we were to pick three things that are at the top of the list, maybe not the top three, but certainly three of the big ones. Um, it would be repeal and replace of Obamacare. Uh, it would be tax slash trade slash economy stuff, which I know I'm kind of cheating there because I'm folding a bunch of things into one, but let's just go with it. And then, of course, immigration, immigration issues, immigration enforcement. Been a little bit of a quiet on this front for a while. We haven't heard all that much about immigration. And I think if we were to pick one issue that was responsible for Trump's rise to the front of the GOP pack back during the old days of the primary, which feels like so long ago now, but of course it really wasn't, it would be immigration that Trump saying that they need to build a wall, that it was no longer okay to just pay lip service to the building of a wall and pay lip service to secure borders, that you had to do stuff, take action, do things. That was, to at least many Americans, enough that it changed the calculus of, well, who was going to win the presidential election. Uh, That was important. That was something that Trump promised, and he has since continued Uh, to hit that note and to say that he's going to follow through. So today we have Attorney General Jeff Sessions down at the uh, Arizona border, and he made some interesting announcements about immigration enforcement and priorities. Here to tell you, the brave men and women of the Customs and Border Protection, we hear you. We hear your concerns. We have your back. Under the president's leadership, and guided by his executive orders, we will secure this border and bring the full weight of both the immigration courts and the federal enforcement and prosecutors to combat this attack on our national security and our sovereignty. It is not just the Democrats who have been willing to play games when it comes to border security and to leave our uh, border agents in the lurch uh, for doing their duty and for uh, for trying to enforce the laws that are supposed to govern entry into this country. In fact, if you go back and look into the case of, I believe it was Ramos and uh, Campeon, two border agents during the Bush administration, were put in a terrible position um, by the Bush administration after a an exchange of fire with a known drug smuggler. And I, I believe they were facing uh, many years in federal prison. And then finally, at the end of the Bush administration, they their sentences were uh, commuted. Um, but the Bush administration was bad on this issue. The Obama administration was bad on this issue and, and dishonest on top of that as well. Um, everyone's had enough. We, we see the way that other countries are allowed to enforce their laws about immigration, their laws about Uh, naturalization, citizenship, all of it, without the accusations and all the allegations um, of racism, xenophobia, being closed-minded and closed off to the rest of the world. They they want, other countries want an orderly, at least the ones that are in a position to try and enforce their borders, which many are not, 
but they want an orderly system for all of this as well. They're they're not uh, just letting people come in and and become citizens. And and the kind of countries where you have a real desire for large numbers of immigrants to make it their home, uh, those also tend to be places where there are state benefits and it becomes an economic issue. But Sessions is saying that he's got the back of the Border Patrol here because that I've spoken to Border Patrol about this in the past, uh, both current and former. And they said, you know, with the Obama administration, you just you knew that if you were too zealous in your enforcement of the law, meaning you were abiding by what what was written and stated and what was supposed to be the policy, that you couldn't count on your superiors and you certainly couldn't count on uh, the political wins in D.C., from shifting against you at the critical moment, right? If you found yourself in a in a gunfight with a drug smuggler and somehow things went bad, you couldn't expect that the administration, whether this, whether the uh, Obama administration or the Bush administration, would would have your back. And then also to send people out to enforce the law and to then be constantly in public, as the Obama administration was, undermining undermining the very reasons for those laws. Oh, you know. Well, we, we we should just we should legalize a lot of people who are in the country illegally. Well, why are you what is that supposed to mean? How, how do you go about waking up every day and spending time at the border, which in some places feels like it's uh, a a combat zone? I know based on the activities of the cartels and uh, and the the paramilitary the paramilitary weaponry that they have and the. Uh, extreme and brutal violence that the cartels have been willing to uh, use in recent years and, and over the last decade. Um, so Border Patrol now has somebody in the White House, well, of course, has a president and also senior administration officials below the president who are willing to say that, yes, they, they will have the Border Patrol's back. That is new. And I've heard from Border Patrol that says that that is a change. And that means now that once you have the enforcement mechanisms supported and in place now you can start to talk about what are the policies how are we going to change those enforcement priorities going forward from what they were with the previous administration and attorney general sessions addressed that as well for those that continue to seek improper and illegal entry into this country be forewarned this is a new era this is the trump era the lawlessness, the abdication of duty to enforce our laws, and the catch-and-release policies of the past are over. The Trump era of border enforcement is upon us, according to the Attorney General here. Uh, that will mean, but It should also be noted that when you talk about charging people that have already been deported from the country with a felony for re-entry, that is a question of prosecutorial policy as opposed to law, because my understanding is that already if you are deported and then you come back and are caught illegally entering the country, it's it's supposed to be a felony, but it's just not treated as such by the courts. Uh, there's also uh, but I, I, sh- I should check on that. Don't take that to the bank just yet, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, the DOJ is planning to add 125 immigration judges over the next two years. They're expediting the hiring process. So there are concrete steps that the Trump administration is taking so they can actually enforce the border. Uh, and you can you can just see this now lining up left and right between the sanctuary cities, 
which I don't think the administration is going to back down on that. The effort to really secure the border. Keep in mind, Democrats and Republicans have been talking about how important it is to have border security for a long time. This is supposed to be a bipartisan area. Um, it's, but it's really, it's really something where it, it the discussion melts away as soon as it comes up, right? It, you know, one really talks about it. It's like talking about reforming entitlements. You know, Republicans and Democrats, oh, I need to reform entitlements. That sounds like a great idea. And then, well, should we? What should we do? What what should we cut? Or how do we change the policy? Should we raise the retirement? And then everyone just all of a sudden starts muttering and you know, oh, I can't do that. Okay. Uh, well, on the border, it's been much the same, much the same thing. And the way that this is going to, I think, uh, become a major political battle is the Democrats are going to realize very quickly here that Trump is serious about this, and that this is a threat to their political power, which is first and foremost their concern. Just as the primary concern for Democrats when it comes to Syria is to find a way to bash Trump and his administration as opposed to actually helping Syrians. I I think we've seen that with much of the media, many prominent Democrats in D.C. Um, Priority number one is bash Trump. Priority number, you know, way, way, way down the list is to help Syrians in a meaningful way. Um, With the border, it's much more about political power uh, that's not only a function of how they want to give amnesty, of course, but they use this as part of the appeal of identity politics the Democratic Party runs on. So by saying that they are pro-amnesty, which the Democrats do, in fact, uh, Hillary Clinton on her campaign website was saying that she, she wanted, if she became president, illegal immigrants were going to have access to Obamacare. She said they wouldn't get the subsidies. How long do you think that would have lasted, by the way? Well, we'll give them Obamacare, but not the subsidies. Well, then you'll have people that want to buy health care and legally are allowed to buy health care, but don't have the money to buy health care. Forget about the fact they're not even supposed to be in the country in the first place. They would just turn on the turn on the money, the money spigot, Uncle Sam, all of a sudden just throwing more taxpayer cash at people that are a uh, at least on a temporary basis, a useful constituency for the Democratic Party. So that's what they would do there um but they see that this is a question of votes um and immigrants legal and illegal but particularly if you consider legalizing uh the illegal immigrant population in this country uh the political power they i i think they believe that they, that Hillary would become president and then they'd be in a position to push through the amnesty that Obama started which i know is stalled in the courts now but they would have found some other means of pushing through additional amnesties or just through enforcement priorities allow the problem to just get worse and worse let it go further until there's no turning back Uh, that was what i think the plan was with hillary and so that's part of why they're so upset that you know like russia hacked the election man or whatever it is that they think Uh, they had with hillary's election they would have had through the democrats approach to immigration a shot at a one-party state uh, they would have been perhaps in a position to, from an electoral perspective, eliminate the De- the Republican Party as a meaningful force in American politics. Uh, that I, I think that was the plan, um, and then it would be, and then it would be all over. Um, then we would all just be fighting over the size and scope of our Democrat socialism in this country, as opposed to saying, "Wait a second, Bernie Sanders? I'm not sure that's really a good idea." Everybody. Uh, speaking to a friend of mine earlier in the week who's one of these uh, 
one of these Ivy League progressive types and just just singing Bernie Sanders praises. And I just said to him, I was like, you know, you really you you want to pay seventy percent of your income in taxes? I mean, you want to go with the Sweden model? You think that's you think that's a good idea? Is that going to make you want to work harder? Uh, I, I the the love that people have for for Sanders is only possible if you don't ask the follow-on questions to, well, who pays for free college? Who pays for free health care? Where, where does that come from? If it's just free stuff and he gets to be this cuddly old guy that gives you all the free stuff, well, then that's fine. But I know I'm talking about Bernie now instead of immigration. Uh, this is uh, the, the warning, by the way, to the cartels as well. I wonder if that's going to have some uh, some blowback. Not that that means he shouldn't do it, but Sessions saying that they're going to go after the cartels more and they're going to enforce the laws more harshly on immigration. Uh, this is an impact that will be felt, I think, acutely and quickly. Um, and things might get very interesting in and around the border and also in areas of the country where there's a major uh, influx of and, and continued residency of illegal aliens. So we'll get into that and some more. Oh, what a surprise. The Russia-Trump conspiracy story is back, everybody. Oh, look at that. Just just when it's so convenient, the, the timing of this is great. Uh, you have a story about Carter Page, which I have not been able to read in full yet. I just saw it now in the Washington Post. Um, saying that there was a counter that there was counterintelligence surveillance of of Carter Page, a former Trump aide. I will this will obviously once I've read through it and gone into some detail, uh, we'll talk about this on the show tomorrow. So think of that as as a preview. And then of course here, one that I did have a chance to read through CNN exclusive. Oh wait, wait I'm sorry. Put a put a, hit the hit the the not actually the pause. This is like. Zach Morrison saved by the bell. He would say time and he would call a timeout and he'd freeze. Let me hit time for a second uh, before I get into the CNN exclusive story. Understand that right now you have Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in Moscow, as I said, and he is demanding that Russia um, back off from assisting Assad. He is going to be pushing them on that issue. The administration, the Trump administration, has publicly accused Russia of covering up Assad's crimes against humanity and, and the chemical weapons usage, uh, usage ha- has taken a very strong stand on that issue uh, publicly. Not This is not just your rumors from senior officials somewhere being reported in a newspaper. This is official Trump administration stuff. Um, and now we're going to get stories about Trump-Russia, of course, about the conspiracy with Trump and Russia. I, Putin, for a, for a guy who is supposedly capable of an incre- of hacking the election or having his minions hack the election of incredible propaganda operations that could sway the minds of Americans. Keep think of all the noise that's out there, all the different news channels and radio shows and social media and everything else uh, trying to convince people of one thing or another. But yeah, Putin and his and his bot army, they they managed to and, and a couple of hackers, they they changed the whole game. That's what we're told. Um he wasn't able to foresee that Trump wouldn't be quite so pliable on policy matters i guess and so here we are um so uh, trump is giving a harder time to the russians than obama ever did on syria that much is for sure and yet there are stories that come out now from the media like this one from cnn.com cnn exclusive classified docs contradict nunez i'm sorry nunez 
surveillance claims, GOP and Dem sources say. Let me just read you a bit from this. And with the proviso that if this is worth our time, we will spend more time on it tomorrow. Quote, after a review of the same intelligence reports brought to light by House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunes, both Republican and Democratic lawmakers and aides have so far found no evidence that Obama administration officials did anything unusual or illegal. Multiple sources in both parties tell CNN. Their private assessment contradicts President Donald Trump's allegation that former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice broke the law by requesting the unmasking of U.S. individuals' identities. Trump had claimed the story of the matter was a, quote, massive story. However, over the last week, several members and staff of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees have reviewed intelligence reports related to those requests at NSA headquarters in Fort Meade, Maryland. One congressional intelligence source said they were, quote, normal and appropriate. Um, okay. Uh, I want Trump to release this stuff. He's the commander in chief because we, we need this to be settled. We should know. People say, oh, box sources and methods. Yeah, they can redact the sources and methods. We, we should know at some level. We can know what what was in uh, at least some of the content of the calls if they can remove the people involved. Right. I mean, because right now you've got members of Congress that are, by the way, they better come out and tell us who these members of Congress are. I don't like this anonymous, you know, anonymous using CNN to do your your fighting for you stuff. Uh, so we'll have to look into this more tomorrow. Uh, this is from CNN. Clearly, it's not going to do any favors for the Trump administration. Uh, I will dig into this. I will also uh, talk to my sources and see what we can figure out about the truth of this, because they are straight up. CNN is straight up calling Nunes a liar here. Big fat liar. That's what they're saying. So we shall see. We shall see how that goes. Uh, please do download the podcast of the show today. iHeartRadio app is a place you can play it on demand. If you want to subscribe in iTunes, type in Buck Sexton with America Now. Click subscribe. You'll download the show every day. Uh, we are growing here in the Freedom Hub, but we always can use and appreciate your help to that end. So tell some friends about this. If you're listening on radio anywhere across the country, tell a couple of friends, hey, tune into this guy. He does a pretty good show. and He calls it the Freedom Hub, which is fun. Until tomorrow night, everybody, shields high.